You're listening to The 66, a podcast in which we survey the books of the Bible, all 66 of them eventually, and uh, this week we are on Esther, and uh, Andrew Haman is dead. They killed him, and then they hung him on a stick. So he is... Impaled him. Yeah, he, he, they may have killed him twice. He's dead. The enemy is out of the way. The whole... Uh, this podcast brings a series on restoration to an end. We started out with Ezra, and then, of course, went to Nehemiah and Esther. And all three of those books tell the story of the Jews' restoration to Jerusalem after a 70-year captivity in Babylon. Uh, each book, or really each person in the books, go, has a, an idea of restoration role. Uh, Zerubbabel, and you may have to help me out on this if I forget one of these. Uh, Zerubbabel's role was the restoration of worship. Ezra's role was the restoration of the law. Uh, Nehemiah restored the city. And Esther's role is kind of... Interesting, the restoration of the honor of the people. You can rebuild a city, and you can put buildings back together, and you can restore religion, but will the people lift their heads up high and stand on their own and believe in themselves and and know that God is behind them? That is really the point of Esther. And there's a point, I'm going to jump ahead in the reading to the key verse of this reading because it's got a phrase, and it's one of the most beautiful phrases in all of the Bible And it really tells you where this idea of honor comes from. And that's Esther chapter 8, verse 6. uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 16. If I were to give two key verses to this book, they would be chapter 4, verse 14, which highlights the theme of providence, and chapter 8, verse 16, which has this idea of the restoration of honor. And it reads that the Jews... For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Light, gladness, joy, and honor. Those four terms really show where the Jews were at the end of Esther's and Mordecai's work as leaders of God's people and restorers of a broken nation. Let's get into the reading. Uh, Today's reading finishes the book of Esther and the whole series of restoration. It's Esther's chapters 8 through 10, and as I said, we left off with the um, extermination, execution, (laughs) extermination, he was a rat, but the execution of Haman, and uh, chapter 8 picks up with the dealing with the problem of Haman's edict. They've executed the villain, but they've still got a problem in Persia, an edict could not be revoked. And so Haman's edict was haunting them like an apparition. They had to do something about it. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that on that day, the day of Haman's death, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And uh, she realized this problem of the edict, edict, which said that on the uh, 13th day of Adar that the Jews were to be put to death all in every province of Persia, all 127 of them, from India to Ethiopia. So she, again, took at great risk to herself the opportunity 
to approach the king with another request. And this is in verse 5. If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? This was still going to happen. And we've talked about, Andrew, the uh, laws of the Medes and Persians. Mm -hmm. There was an example in chapter 1, kind of a silly one, of a law about drinking. And it couldn't be broken. And now we've got a very serious edict. We see this also in the book of Daniel. Got Daniel into a lot of trouble. They had made a law about prayer that was ridiculous. But they couldn't break it. And that's how Daniel wound up in the lion's den. And here there is a law that has been made that on this day all the Jews are to be executed. And uh, Esther is trying to find a solution to it. So... The king gives them his signet ring and allows Mordecai and Esther to make a new edict. Now, this is kind of tricky because they can make an edict that's, you know, some kind of amendment that erases the first one. Mm -hmm. they, they have to have a workaround of some kind. And their solution is to make an edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves. And that's recorded in verses 11 and following. In them, in these letters sent throughout the provinces with the king's signet ring, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day... In all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, that's the same month Haman cho chose, same day, same month Haman chose for the execution of the Jews. And that letter was sent out all throughout the province. And Mordecai, verse 15, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold, and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted, and rejoiced for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. So you have this, and then in chapter 9, we get to the battle. Some of the people in Persia are ready to carry out Haman's edict. Anti-Semitism was very strong in that day, or Haman would not have been allowed to get away with what he was doing to begin with. So there were a lot of people who were still planning to kill the Jews, and they were waiting on this day to do it. So you have a couple of days here where there is battle. Day 1 is recorded in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. In the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, this day that the lot fell on when Haman was casting lots, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled themselves throughout all the provinces, and they 
did so to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And on day one, in Susa the capital, they killed 500 men, and they killed the ten sons of Haman, who are listed in verses 7 through 10. But it is said that they didn't lay their hands on the plunder. Well, then on the second day, uh, this would be on the 14th day of Adar, uh, it was reported that 500 men and the ten sons of Haman had been killed. And uh, Esther asked the king if the next day they could not uh, keep fighting because there seemed to still be some people out to get them. So on the next day, they killed 300 more men and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. Uh, you know, I, I was going to save this for the second part, but I, I, we've already talked about it. I will just bring this up. Mm-hmm. You remember when we talked about Haman, there was that whole deal where they covered his face and then they hanged him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about what that might mean and the phrase covered his face may be a Persian idiom for death mm-hmm. or killing somebody. And uh, they often, you know, would impale people who are already dead to get them off the sacred ground the way they viewed it. Yeah. Well, here is a very explicit example of people who, you know, verse verse 10 is very clear that the sons of Haman were killed. Uh, verses 6 through 10, the sons of Haman were killed, and they're hanging them the next day. So this shows you the Persian practice of humiliating the enemy and also practicing the ritualistic cleansing uh, by keeping the ground pure, keeping dead, contaminating corpses off the ground, which is the exact opposite of what we do when we put bodies in the ground. That's what's going on there with the ten sons of Haman being hanged the day after they were killed. Mm -hmm. They were impaled. Their dead bodies were impaled. Uh, Verse 16 tells us what was going on in the rest of the world, India through Ethiopia, and the 127 provinces of Persia, a very large empire, 75,000 people were killed by the Jews. No Jewish casualties are mentioned. Uh, there, you know, you can speculate that was the Lord behind them so that no one died. Possibly, were there a few killed, but it was too few to mention. Possibly, was the emphasis on the victory of the Jews, and so they didn't mention. Uh, some of those that died, you know, we don't know exactly. But many, many people were killed. Certainly not everybody, um, but it seems like those, the only people killed were those that were necessary to the defense of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, after that, Mordecai issues an edict that the Jews celebrate a new feast. We read about all these feasts in the book of Leviticus. And uh, there are others added here and there. But the feast uh, that was the last one established among the Jews is recorded in the book of Esther. And it's a feast called Purim, the word Purim coming from the Persian word for lot, which is what started all of this when Haman was casting lots to decide what day he would choose to execute the Jews. So Mordecai issues this edict to celebrate a feast on the 14th of the month Adar and on the 15th day of the same month annually because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies and it was a month which was turned for them 
from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. And so the Jews, even to this day, celebrate this feast. The book ends rather abruptly. Uh, Chapter 10 says that Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, the question is said, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So there's not anything said about Esther in the last chapter of the book, which is really surprising since the book bears her name. And uh, that's the way it ends. And you wonder why that is? You know, maybe Mordecai was the point, the whole thing, after all. Or maybe because Esther is a woman, she was overlooked. Uh, Nobody knows for sure. The taxation point was tacked on there, maybe to show a positive change in the king. Rather than plunder his territories, he's now taxing them to raise revenue. I know we Americans look at taxes as a bad thing, but back then they welcomed taxation over being plundered, which is the way that he was getting his revenue before that time. So it was a relative period of peace after all of this, a restoration of honor and uh, a celebration of that through the Feast of Purim. When uh, we were talking through the book of Esther... Andrew, did you notice that a lot of things turned out differently than you might have expected? Yes, very much so. What's the, what's the name for that? When something turns out differently than than what you expected? Uh, irony. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the word I'm looking for. You know, if we if this were just being evaluated as a story, we would call it irony. Yeah. And uh, how ironic. And you go down the list, and it's pretty, a pretty amazing set of ironies. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a time of fierce anti-Semitism, and yet the Persians unwittingly put a Jewish girl on the throne. So during this time when a guy could make an edict to kill the Jews, a Jew becomes queen of Persia. That's amazing. Then Haman hates Mordecai, and he winds up having to honor him. You know, and you remember that, I, I think it was in the last episode, where mm-hmm. the king said, what should be done for a man that uh, the king desires to honor? And yeah. Haman comes up with all of these things, and he goes, well, go out and do that for Mordecai. Yeah, and And then... The irony of Haman building this gallows for Mordecai, and then he is the one who's hanged on the gallows. Mm-hmm. And then especially the one where, uh, if right there in chapter 8 and verse 2, Mordecai ends up being set over the house of Haman. Yeah. So Yeah, that was the, that was the next one I was going to bring mm-hmm. up. He gets Haman's house and all his property, and yeah. chapter 9, verse 1 s- summarizes the irony up really well. Um, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, 
on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Mm -hmm. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So Mm -hmm. you could call this book, The Reverse Occurred, because that's what happens over and over and over again. Just when you think it's going to wind up this way, it winds up that way. And we say, oh, how ironic. What a great story. It's got plot twists. And, you know, I've heard of uh, English, or you know, um, creative writing classes that use the Book of Esther as an example for, you know, plots and how to build a good twist and all this. But it's really a lot deeper than irony. Mm -hmm. It's not irony, really, that we're supposed to be seeing here. Because this isn't just a story. What we really need to look at what we're calling irony as is justice. What's Mm -hmm. happening here is justice. So it's not just spinning a good yarn. We're reading about how God is putting everything back together the way that it should be. Mm -hmm. Taking a twisted world and untwisting it. Um, You know, justice also sometimes rendered righteousness describes the proper order God wills for the life of his people. So Esther is merely a story of justice. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, it, what we see as irony is just God making things right. Taking yeah. something that got really messed up and turning it in a very quick period of time, mm-hmm. turning it right side up. Yeah, to make the reverse occur. Yeah. And we need to think about final judgment that way also. We, you know, we always talk about judgment day in terms of punitive judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's punishment. And those people are going to hell, you know, mm-hmm. that had done wrong because they deserve punishment. But Judgment Day is more about God making everything right. Putting the world to rights, setting things back in order, and you're seeing just a glimpse, really, of what is going to happen on the last day of the world, at the end of history, What you're seeing in the book of Esther is a glimpse into where all of history is headed. And so that makes it a lot more fascinating than just looking at it as, well, you know, this is is really ironic. Yeah. Yeah, there's one more uh, point on that, um, you know, justice being fulfilled and the irony of especially Mordecai and Haman. There's so much stuff in there. Because we talked about Haman and what made him, you know, what was his downfall, and it was his pride. It was his desire to advance in the kingdom to where everybody knew his name, everybody wanted to bow down to him, bow down to him, that sort of thing. And what's really interesting is in chapter 9, in verse 3 and 4, what uh, the writer has to say about Mordecai, the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So all these big people in the government help out the Jews because they know about Mordecai. And they are they respect Mordecai and they know it's going to happen if they go against him. And then look in verse 4. Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now, I imagine this is exactly what Haman was thinking. Uh, you know, Haman's for, great, greatest fear. Yeah, yeah, like for the last few weeks, months, days of Haman's life, 
and probably for his entire adult life, this was his goal, is for those verses to have Haman's, you know, like mm-hmm. a statement like that to be made about Haman. Mm-hmm. That's what he's trying to get at, and Mordecai is just part of the collateral to get him there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really... But it would have never happened. It would have never, ever, ever happened for Haman. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about his insecurities in a, in a previous episode. You yeah. know, he had to... He had, when he had a bad day, he called all his yes-men in and his wife together to recount all of his achievements. <laughs> he had to have that constantly because he had no inner security, no foundation. And this phrase, I want to think about this phrase that you brought up from chapter 9, verse 3, the fear of Mordecai. Okay, and and you, you're probably right. You said the respect, it's about the respect that Mordecai got from the people, and that's what Haman mm-hmm. wanted, and Haman couldn't have. But I, I, I think it's very possible that we're looking at another one of these examples that you find in the book of Esther where the writer is trying to use the Persian template for government documents, mm-hmm. but he's also telling us a story about God using the limitations of the Persian template, yeah. which won't allow him to mention the name of God. Because you see this kind of language also at the end of chapter 8. Um, in chapter 8, verse 17... There are two things that are said here that there was, you know, gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. So Gentiles are becoming Jews. Mm-hmm. Now, ethnically speaking, a Gentile cannot become a Jew unless there's some kind of, they had some genetic secrets that we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. But I can't make you like an African American. Yeah, you know, you're. Uh, in case y'all haven't noticed, Andrew is white, mm-hmm. and he will always be white. Mm-hmm. You know, he he goes to the beach and he tries to get a tan, but it just goes back to being white. Turns red and then goes. He back turns to white. red. He blisters, but ethnically, you're always going to be Caucasian. Mm-hmm. So ethnically, you know, you're stuck in what God gave you. Mm-hmm. That's your DNA, but. So there's another sense in which you can read the word Jew, and that's the religious sense. So we're reading about proselytes here, a conversion. And it's very handled very delicately here. And people always say, well, there's no God in the book of Esther. Well, people are being converted to belief in God mm-hmm. in chapter 8, verse 17. And then it's in that same verse that it uses this phrase, but it's more broad than what you brought up in chapter 9, verse 3. The fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So they became Jews, or they declared themselves Jews, because the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell on them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, maybe it's respect for the people. And, you know, one way that you could read it is to say, well, they started declaring, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, don't hurt me, I'm a Jew, because they were afraid that Jews were killing them. Yeah. But you can see that the Jews are very careful just to defend themselves. They weren't taking plunder. And mm-hmm. uh, I want to say more about that in a moment. What's more likely is fear is a is code for God. Yeah, you know, so instead the of... Dread 
of the Jews is the God of the Jews. Hmm. The one whom they fear is what is meant by fear. So you brought that up, and it is a point on irony, but it also helped me segue into this idea that we're looking again at traces of God in this book that supposedly never mentions God. And, you know, Haman could never have the fear of Mordecai because he didn't believe in God. Yeah. He didn't have fear. Yeah. He didn't have that spiritual depth to him. He was an insecure person. So it's more no foundation. So it wouldn't... It, it would be a good idea to keep in the back of your mind when you read um, the last verse of verse 8. Many people from the country declared themselves Jews for, like, the fear of the Lord. You know, talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge from Proverbs. Yeah. Kind of this idea of, you know, yeah, they fear the Jews, maybe for their safety because of what's happened to the people that hate the Jews, but it could be on more of a deeper level of, well, now they have come... To you know, like you said, this is this is about God. They have come more to fear the God of the Jews than just the Jews themselves. Yeah, you know, they're exactly. not afraid of necessarily Mordecai himself. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of what Mordecai represents, and that's the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation is supposed to be the representation of God. It's supposed to be the nation of God. So, yeah, that's a really good point to bring out. Well, let's let's go back to something that's kind of troubling. The edict that Esther and Mordecai come up with to try to work around Haman's edict. It's in verse 11 where they make an edict where the king grants the Jews the right to assemble and to defend their lives. And so far we're okay with it. But then to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including with children and women, and to plunder their spoil. So some people look at that and they have a big problem with this because, you know, they're they're making an edict to kill women and children. Mm-hmm. But um, there are a number of theories about it, and I think the evidence, when you look at day one and day two of the battle and the conduct of the Jews and how they carried it out, I think it helps us see what's really going on here. Uh, you know, and on day one... It is said, verse 2 of chapter 9, that they were planning to lay hands only on those who sought their harm. So that sounds like defense. Yeah. And, um, you know, they did what they pleased, verse 5, to those who hated them. And then, of course, verse 10 says they didn't lay their hands on the plunder. And it's said again about what happened on the next day. And it's said again in verse 16 about you know, the um, whole Persian Empire. No Jew picked up plunder, which tells you the way they interpreted verse 11 was just in terms of self-defense. And it could have been that this would have been a pretty big scare tactic for all the people who are thinking about, you know, on this day that Haman's elected, we're going to go out and wipe out the Jews. This could have been a scare tactic because if you're reading this decree and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do it anyway... Um, or I'm thinking about doing it, and it says, well, they can not only defend themselves against you, um, they can annihilate any armed force of province, any people, province that might attack them, including their women and their children, and they can take all their goods. So it almost makes it, it makes it more risky for these guys that are thinking Mm -hmm. about going to kill some Jews, because then it's not, 
well, you know, if I die, I die with the honor of being in battle or whatever. Now it's you're putting your children, family. your wife, and uh, pretty much your entire city at risk. Because if they think your city is going to come and attack them, or if your city does come to attack them, if some from your city do, then they can, according to this decree, come to your city and burn it to the ground and all the stuff that goes with it. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people think, well, they could have made this edict without including the women and children clause. And, you know, they have a big problem with that, but it may be just there to protect them against any collateral damage that might occur. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, in war, women and children get hurt, and we're seeing this in our country right now, you know, in, in the attacks that are going on, in, um, uh, you know, and what's going on also between Israel and uh, uh, the Palestinians. The Palestinians are using hospitals and using women and children as human shields, and when mm-hmm. Israel strikes against them and some women and children are killed, it's a horrible thing, and it's awful, and uh, Israel says it's the only way we can defend ourselves, and the Palestinians are using that as propaganda. And, you know, maybe that kind of thing was going on back in those days, too. And so it became common in the edicts to just include this line, this clause, that they're allowed to kill women and children to protect them against any, you know, mitigation, uh, I'm sorry, litigation that might come against them for uh, having collateral damage. Yeah. You know, but I think it's very clear, you know, when you read the text that the Jews didn't want to kill women and children, they didn't want to plunder, they didn't want to take anything, but if they happened to do any of those things, they weren't going to be held liable no. by the Persian courts for this that kind of This is about the Jews can defend themselves. They're, they're not going to get just killed and they can't do anything about it. They are, they are um, allowed by the king to not get wiped out. That's pretty much... This would be if during the Holocaust there's a decree that goes out, you can refuse the soldiers, or you can, you know, refuse to go with them when they tell you you're leaving your house, or something like that. Just gives them a chance to. Um, exactly what Esther and Mordecai are trying to do is give them a way to preserve their nation, to protect themselves. Yeah. Evidently, the edict that that Haman made did not allow the Jews to arm themselves mm-hmm. against their enemies. And this edict allowed them to, to get ready for a battle. Yeah. And then you still have to believe in the providence of God here for the Jews to be this successful against mm-hmm. their enemies, who no doubt were more experienced you know, at military battle than the Jews were. Yeah. The Jews were not, at this stage, a warring people. They've been through too. a captivity, and you know, they, weren't, they weren't really skilled at fighting. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering... You know, I think before we are quick to draw some kind of judgment on this new decree that's written, we really got to think about we are thousands of years removed in a completely different culture. And we might, you know, I've been sitting here thinking, well, if I was going to write a new edict to get around it, what would I write? Mm-hmm. And then maybe you'd write something like, well, the Jews would be allowed if they put, and I'm thinking of the Passover, you know, if they put blood on their doorstep, the soldiers cannot. No one can attack them if they put blood on their doorstep. Or if they wear clothing that day, no one can attack them. Or, you know, just some way to 
say, you know, you can do it, but if they are, you know, if they have hair on their head, you can't, or something like that. You're saying that's maybe something Esther could have done instead of this? Yeah, you know. Well, just, but but you got to remember the, the laws of the Medes and Persians were irrevocable, mm-hmm. and Haman's law that had been passed... It's ridiculous to make to say that a guy can make a law that can't be revoked. But Haman's law said, on this day, you can kill mm-hmm. any Jew for any reason and not yeah. be held accountable for it. So anything like that, she could, you know, that was off the table. Mm-hmm. The only thing Mordecai and Esther could do was arm their people for a fight. Yeah. And then, like you said, maybe scare, intimidate the others. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say is... You know, before we draw a judgment on here and try and think of these different thoughts, like I was talking about, yeah, we gotta understand Esther and Mordecai know what they are. It's not like they said, "Well, let's just let them fight." If they, you know, okay, write that down. That's not what happened. I'm sure Esther and Mordecai were very, especially Mordecai, was very careful and meticulous in planning out what this thing was going to be and how it could be done in the most certainly as a Jew, as a God fearing man how this could be done in the most righteous way and how this could be done in the way that's going to keep their people alive, which is all wrapped up in the righteousness there. So I think, you know, before people get quick to judge on this edict and, you know, they should really, we really need to stop and think that, look, Mordecai and Esther knew what they were doing. They had already been involved in the leadership of Persia at this time. And so just uh, just by... Um, sheer experience, Mordecai and Esther are much more qualified to write an edict than any of us are sitting in our, you know, offices or armchairs or cars or whatever. And we think, oh, how about this idea? Mm-hmm. You know, we think in 30 seconds we have a better idea. We have no idea how the political structure of Persia works yeah. and things like that. So, And even studying it, mm-hmm. you, you still, there's so many things we don't know about this. Mm-hmm. Government, the customs of these people. Uh, we know a lot more about the Jews than we do the Persians. At least, you know, I do from from my studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we close out this part of the podcast, I want to I want to talk about Purim. Didn't say much about it before on purpose because I thought it'd be interesting to include it in our discussion. And uh, I, you know, there's there. This is a feast. Now, I misspoke. I need to correct something that I said before. Uh, You know, I said this was the last feast instituted for the Jews. That's not the case. Later, you'll have the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, which will be instituted in the intertestamental period after the Maccabean Revolt. And this is something, you know, Jesus and his disciples, we find them celebrating over in the Gospel accounts. And you don't find that at all in the Old Testament. It came after the Old Testament was concluded. So I guess we could say this is the second to the last mm-hmm. feast instituted. And I, in the third part of the podcast, I'll have to come back and make a correction on that one, I'm sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is the third to the last. But uh, yeah. yeah, I got to thinking about that. This is the second to the last. But it is interesting that so many centuries have gone by with you know them celebrating the three big ones, the... Uh, Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, and of course all the Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Trumpets, and there were some other feasts in there. Day of Atonement, for sure. Uh, and then, you know, now we have a new feast. 
And so a lot of people are unfamiliar with this, so I was going to give just the basic points of it as it's outlined in chapter 9, verses 20 and following, and then talk a little bit about modern-day Purim, because you know there, some more traditions have developed over the years that are pretty interesting as well. Now, just from the text in the inspired scripture, you know that the feast was set in the 12th month, which corresponds to our February or March on our calendar, and it was a two-day feast to accommodate the different celebrations in the provinces and Susa. It was named Purim, and I said this before, after the Persian word pur, which means lot, and that goes back to commemorating, you know, how all this came about through mm-hmm. Haman casting lots with his buddies about, you know, when, when we're going to kill the kill the Jews. Um, Queen Esther gave written authority confirming uh, this letter about the feast, and in her letter, it appears that she calls for fasting, maybe on the 13th, which was the day on which the Jews were to be killed, to proceed two days of feasting. So today, some Jews observe Esther's fast on the day before Purim, and then they observe Purim. Uh, Purim did not emphasize the demise of Haman and the Jews' enemies, but the salvation they received. Look at verse 22 again. The days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. So, Mm. uh, you know, that's basically all that's said about it in chapter 9. And through the centuries up to today, a lot of uh, traditions have developed. So that this has become one of the favorite holidays of the of the Jews. Um, so it's celebrated with almost the same attitude as the Passover, pretty much. Uh, it's not as uh, solemn as the Passover, yeah. I wouldn't say. You know, Passover is still the big one, very mm-hmm. solemn, um, but it's popular, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There's a lot of fun that they have with it. Um, the, it was so popular that during the rabbinical period that the rabbis declared that it alone would continue to be celebrated after the Messiah comes. Uh, that's in the Mishnah. And all other holidays were not to be celebrated in the Messianic days. I don't know if mm. the Jews still hold to that. Um, it's you know still on the 14th day of Adar, which is usually March for us. And, uh, you know, like I said, sometimes they observe a fast beforehand to commemorate the the day on which the execution of the Jews was to take place. The most important, we talked about this in the break, the most important custom of Purim is the reading of the Purim story from the scroll of Mm -hmm. Esther. And uh, the Jews usually attend synagogue for that reading. And... Whenever Haman's name is brought up, they have this custom of booing, howling, hooting. Uh, they've got these noisemakers called groggers that they rattle every time the name Haman is, is mentioned. So they, it's very interactive that way. And it's like I said, they have a lot of fun with it. The children and adults will often show up in costume and... You know, this started out as them dressing up as characters in the story. You know, if somebody would dress up as... You, know, you could come dressed up as Esther. You could come as Mordecai. And I'm not talking about the people on stage or... You know, it's a reading. 
I mean, there might be like 12 Esters out there and several Mordecais. You could dress up as whoever you wanted to be. But these days, it's just common to find, you know, Harry Potter and Batman and, mm-hmm. you know, all. It's like a Jewish Halloween in the sense that yeah. you can dress up for this occasion. So they don't necessarily dress up as the characters. I would imagine that, you know, probably uh, most people still dress up as the, the characters in the story. But um, a lot of that has to do with symbolizing the way that Esther concealed her identity as a Jew when she was serving as queen. And, you know, there's this big reveal that I'm a Jew. And then at the end, they reveal that Mordecai is a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, most it seems that they knew that. And it's a little confusing about that. Um, sometimes there'll be a play to reenact it. And they always poke fun at the villain during the play. There's a lot of booing and hissing during the plays. And then food is really important, as with all Jewish holidays. Uh, the people are commanded to send baskets filled with food and drink to other Jews. And according to Jewish law, these need to contain at least two different kinds of food that is ready to eat. And uh, they're also supposed to enjoy a festive meal as a part of the holiday. And uh, they serve special Purim cookies during the dessert course. One of the most interesting commandments related to Purim has to do with drinking. According to the Jewish law, adults of drinking age are supposed to get so drunk that they can't tell the difference between Mordecai and Haman. That's uh, that's in the rabbinical wow. uh, law. Not Hope everybody participates in it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Recovering alcoholics and people with health problems are, you know, exempt from this oh, good. rule. Good. Um, but, you know, it's part of the celebration. They send out food ga- baskets. Uh, it's gift-giving. It's a very um, gift-giving time. Uh, they're encouraged to make monetary donations to charities that they want to support or give money to needy people. So, um, you know, it's a... A feast that uh, the Jewish people enjoy very much these days, and uh, you can see it celebrated around. And if you have a friend who is Jewish, you might ask them about this because you know this is probably one of the more interesting ones that I've read about. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. That's uh, if you've got a friend that's a Jewish person, maybe don't, <laughs> and you're over the age of twenty-one, maybe don't go per se, but... Yeah, I don't know if in the frat houses the guys say, I'm going to get so drunk that I can't tell between Mordecai and Haman. I, I don't know if that's really... I, I should have done a little more homework on that. third section of the podcast, we apply. Read, think, applies. The mm-hmm. slogan of our humble podcast. And, you know, when you look at Esther overall, but particularly chapters 8 through 10, where you see the celebration of honor, what you see revealed here is God's power to turn sorrow into joy. And, uh, you know, you really get this from the, the Feast of Purim and how they could have made this you know, a 
you know, just a celebration of the defeat of the enemy and a tearing down of the enemy and taunting. They could have turned it into a taunt, but instead what they what they turned it into was a celebration of God turning this from sorrow to joy. That's chapter 9, verse 22, that the, these are days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. And I also go back to chapter 8, verse 16, which is the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. You know, light is a symbol of God's presence. So I read all four of those terms as, as going together. The presence of God brought gladness, joy, and honor. The presence of God in this book that doesn't mention his name turned their sorrow into joy. And you can't help but think about what the presence of Jesus Christ did in the first century among his apostles. In John 16, he is preparing them for his death. He's going to lead them, leave them, and he knows it's going to be a, the worst thing that's ever happened to any of them, the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And he says to them, you know, he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. In chapter 16, verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And there's a couple of parallels here. It's not just that they were sad and they became happy, but they were sad while the world was rejoicing and the whole thing was reversed and their joy came out of that sorrow. You know, Paul talks about birth pangs and, you know, how, how um, a mother goes into labor, but she does it for the joy that will follow. And this is a Christian theme that you see throughout the New Testament, and there's a little glimpse of it in the book of Esther. And I think that's really the overall message of the book is that, you know, no matter how dark things get for you, if you put your faith in God and you trust in Him and you let Jesus lead your life, there is joy there. And Christians forget that. Sometimes we focus so much on the negative aspects of, you know, doctrine and, um, you know, tearing down the enemies of Christ and fighting against falsehood that we forget that the gospel is good news. And the, mm-hmm. mess, the mission we're on is a mission of joy. And, uh, you know, Esther is a reminder of that as Christ is. You know, he says in John 10, verse 10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We're people of joy, and the book of Esther is a little book that just is a great reminder of that encouraging lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so, and I think that's something that not a whole lot of people think about when they read Esther, because something that we we just keep bringing up and that everybody brings up and talk about Esther is the providence of God. And we just think about, well, God works behind the scenes. And not in the context that you're talking about, about our whole mission as Christians and what we do and how we live our lives. It's, you know, it's a it's a message, a message and a mission of joy, like you said. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about this book. But the book is, we finished the book. We also finished our big series on the restoration of Israel, like we talked about at the very beginning of this episode. But something we do at the end of every book is talk about just kind of some things that maybe stood out to us, kind of our 
maybe favorite parts of the book, what things we think were most interesting. Just kind of a look back at some of the really interesting things from the book that we've covered. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have, what do you think for you is the big, do you have a big takeaway, something big? Uh, well, I like this. This is, you know, it has become a standout for me in the Old Testament because it's a story. And, I, you know, I've been impressed with the the narrative of the book and we talked about the irony and how it's really justice, not irony. But it is fun to read. It is a great story. And you can't help but be charmed by the book because of the story that it tells. So it is one of my favorites in the New Testament for that simple reason. And, you know, another thing, uh, you know, getting back to our lesson there for a second... I used to just look at it as a little book that explains how the Jews survived the Persian period. Yeah. And I just thought, that that's the only reason it's in there. God had to tell the story about how the Jews came to the brink of extinction and through his providence they survived. And I do think that that's it, but it's more than that. It's about God turning sorrow into joy. So it's mm-hmm. got a lot of Christian, it's got a Christian undercurrent to it. Oh yeah, that is very applicable to us today, and I don't know that I realized that until I taught it recently, and then we we did the podcast. So I I see it in a Christian light more than I ever have before. So I think it's probably one of my favorite Old Testament books because it's this little gem of a story that we don't teach that much. Now I will say, let me throw a. Um, another side to it, it's not that easy to teach in a class. Yeah. So I think that in our churches, a lot of times we don't hear it because it's ten chapters. Chapter ten is like three verses. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, we're trying to make these things stretch out a whole quarter, and there's not a lot of doctrinal meat in it. Mm-hmm. And tells a story, and it's hard to teach a story. Um, and it, it it is challenging in that respect, but those are my impressions on it. What did you think about it? Um, really, I guess my my big thing from it was, I guess my favorite part is the irony we were talking about, especially between Haman and Mordecai. It's just I don't know. It's like a very um, real and detailed illustration of the verses that you see. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That kind of idea. You know, he who's first shall be last. Because that's exactly what happens to Haman. You know, like we said earlier, he wanted all this stuff, and Mordecai gets it. And Haman, in his efforts to take it away from Mordecai, ends up giving all that glory that he wants to Mordecai. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of funny. Due to his pride, he ends up being humbled. Whereas yeah. if he would have been humble in the first place, he would have been exalted. So it's just kind of a kind of a really practical way of seeing that really happen. And that's that's probably my got, big you, takeaway. You got a little book here with one of the greatest heroes of the Bible mm-hmm. and one of the greatest villains of the Bible. All yeah. in this little book. You know, and that that's another thing that mm-hmm. really makes it interesting. So. And I don't think you know, when when you're taught this growing up and stuff, I don't think you can really get a grasp on just how big of a deal this is for the Jewish people. Like this is 
you know, we mentioned the Passover a minute ago. When we we're talking about our feasts. They made a feast for this thing to remember mm-hmm. this point in history, because just like with the Exodus, they were in slavery and they were brought out, and they used yeah. the Passover to remember that. That's a huge point in their history. That's one of the defining moments for Jews. And then here you have another one in what later becomes Purim, uh, recognizing the fact that the Jews are saved from annihilation. Exodus, uh, with the Passover, they're saved from slavery. And now here with Purim and Haman and Mordecai and Esther, they're saved from being actually extinct from the face of the earth. Yeah. So it's a huge, pivotal point. Right. If they make a feast about it, Yeah. it's it's more important than we give it credit for. And, oh, yeah. Uh, one thing that's great about the 66 is we don't plan to leave any book out. Mm-hmm. And so far, on our website, we now have three books mm-hmm. uh, in in the uh, in the website. So yeah. uh, we have a lot more to go, 63 to go. Uh, our plan is next to look at some of the minor prophets. I think we're going to mm-hmm. knock out um, a book per episode for the next couple of episodes because these minor prophets are short. We're not we're not going to do all the minor prophets, and I promise we're going to get out of the Old Testament soon and get mm-hmm. into some New Testament books. But you know, there are thirty nine books of the Old Testament and twenty seven in the New Testament. So if we're going to do all of them, it's going to mean more time yeah. over in the Old Testament. But I think that when we get to some of the New Testament books that require a lot, a lot more time, we'll we'll slow it down quite yeah. a bit. And and, uh, and one thing that we want to, as you mentioned earlier, Esther is a hard book to teach in a class, and so are a lot of these minor prophets, and so are um, a lot of different things from New Testament books. And that's one of the reasons our podcast is an hour long. And I know that when you know you're thinking about listening to something, you you're not necessarily you're thinking an hour is a long time to invest in this. Well, what this is for a big part of what we are trying to do here is to help out some teachers that maybe you have a class on a Sunday morning, you've got a topic, you're going through a book, you don't really know how to handle it. Then you know maybe we can give you some help uh, with the commentaries and the books that we have and the. The notes that we have gotten, you know, from other people, from classes we have taught. Hopefully, uh, this can help you uh, in teaching your class. And aside from that, hopefully, it can help you in a thorough study of God's Word. Just if you want to sit down and have something more than a, you know, a ten-minute. Here's your main points from the chapter. Have a good day. You know, something to actually think about what you have read and to actually try and apply it to your life. So we hope that this podcast can be useful. Um, to you, whether you're teaching a class or whether you're just wanting to study it for yourself, we hope that this can be a useful resource for you. If you've got a comment to make, uh, you can comment um, on our website, at 66.net. We'll get all those. If you want to whine and complain, you can send that to dkaiser at arcoc.com. If you want to tell us we are just amazing, you can send it to akingsley at arcoc.com. And uh, we hope and we pray that we can get through all 66 of these books. Thank you for